0: Yes, I know you all want me to cover the impeachment trial of President Trump, but everyone's covering the impeachment trial of President Trump. It's the second one after all, so that makes it newsworthy, and anything with Donald Trump is newsworthy. But I'm not going to say too much about it because it's a joke. I've said it before. The Senate voted along party lines today as to rule whether the impeachment of President Trump for the second time is even a constitutional proceeding, given that it's taking place after he has left office. No surprise there. They voted along party lines to vote that it was constitutional because they want their dog and pony show after all. Uh, any chance to attempt to humiliate the president, I think it may backfire on them, but regardless, It still takes 67 senators under the Constitution to impeach and, or I should say, to convict a sitting president in an impeachment. Uh, There is no provision to take any vote against a president that has already left office, which is why John Roberts, as we've told before uh, on this show, uh, is not presiding over the trial as is required by the Constitution. Instead, we have Senator Depends, Pat Leahy from Vermont, who barely is competent. Uh, doing it. And as a result of Rand Paul's vote taken a few weeks ago, in anticipation of the impeachment, he wanted to get them all on record. 45 of the 50 Republican senators voted that it was unconstitutional to impeach a president that's already gone. We can therefore conclude that 45 of them will vote to acquit the president, which leaves the uh, Senate short by about 12 votes. The best they can come up with is 55. They have 50 Democrats and they hope they have those five treasonous Republican senators, Mitt Romney being the leading offender, Susan Collins of Maine, Ben Sass from Nebraska, uh, Lisa Murkowski from Alaska, the proverbial pain in the butt, or I should say the perennial pain in the butt, and Pat Toomey from Pennsylvania All names duly noted on the show before and will be taken into account. Hi everyone, I'm Jamie Dury and welcome to another NPO podcast. If you have not already done so, please subscribe to the show. Do so either by going to the iTunes App Store and downloading the NPO podcast from the App Store. Or go to the Google Play Store and download the same thing there. In either location, you can also go and download the Podbean app, our hosting service. It's a free app. It's a free subscription. You can download that. No matter how you download, no matter how you subscribe, you can always write reviews. You can always be notified whenever a new episode is uploaded, which is the main advantage of a subscription. And we do ask you to subscribe. We do ask you to leave reviews, a few comments, even if it's a sentence or two. Give us a good rating because the more ratings we get, the higher the ratings we get, the more reviews we get, the more readily the show is found, the more it grows, and the more we can bring special content to you that you don't get anyplace else. So, so much for the impeachment. What I really wanted to talk about were a few issues today. And there are issues that have to do with race. Uh, One issue came to my attention because of my personal involvement in it, and I'll get to that towards the end of the show. But another one came into being because of the Super Bowl. In fact, I'll save the Super Bowl for last. Let's get to this issue the other day. One of the things we talked about on the show yesterday is that New York City is about to resume in-person learning uh, on the 25th of February this month. Now, it's not going to be full in-person learning because not every school had full in-person learning. So I suppose if you were in a full in-learning posture, which is few and far between, you'll go back to it. That would be the elementary schools. But the middle school that my son goes to um, was in a blended learning posture, a few days a week at home, a few days a week in school. And it's not been good. I've said it from the, from the beginning. It's not healthy for children to go to school remotely. Uh, it's not the way things are meant to be. It's not the way teachers' salaries are fashioned. It's not the way their job description was envisioned. In-person learning is where it needs to be. Now, children in this day and age, I'm sure you parents can sympathize, already spend far too much time on their devices and we do our best to limit them, but they still spend far too much time because all their friends are doing it. It's one of their main forms of recreation. Even when they're separated, especially in this uh, COVID false pandemic that everyone is altering every aspect of their lives for, uh, the kids can't have play dates like they used to. They're able to communicate in cyberspace and play games remotely, even though they're... Uh, maybe miles away, just as easily if they were each sitting there side by side playing with a device in the same room. So, to have all of that and then have them spend the better part of five, six hours a day in school on a device, just too many days on screens, too much inactivity, not good for the mind. So, they're going to go back to school. But there was one aspect of this remote learning that was most illuminating for me. Since my wife works and I have my own businesses, I don't want to leave my son home alone all day when my wife is at work. So on those days when she's working, I take him with me to my place of business because during the day, I have a lot of free time. It's very quiet. Most of my clients don't come in until later in the day. And so I have the opportunity to listen to what's going on in his classrooms, in the car, on the way up, and once he's here at work. Yesterday, something caught my ear. His homeroom teacher was talking about Black Lives Matter in a very, very positive light and really being very apologetic for it, uh, explaining how it's not really, you know, about black lives. It's about all lives uh, and so forth and so on. Uh, And, you know, really making the case that this is some sort of, you know, bona fide movement and a, a mainstream thing. Look, As I've said many times on the show in the past, the sentiment expressed by the title of the organization, Black Lives Matter, you really can't argue with that. Of course, Black Lives Matter. All lives matter. And I would never say otherwise. Why should Black Lives be an exception? Why should they be the only ones that don't matter? Of course they matter. We know this. But the title, the sentiment, Black Lives Matter, and the organization that has stolen and hijacked that name and what they stand for, are two different things. And I'm not making this up. I'll read for you right from Black Lives Matter website. Seven demands. One, convict and ban Trump from future political office. Now, what exactly are we going to convict Trump of? Not getting us into any wars in the last four years like his predecessors have done? Uh, raising minority employment and lowering black, Hispanic, and female unemployment to the lowest levels they've ever been since they've been measured. Uh, what else are we going to convict him of? Getting four peace agreements with Israel and their Arab neighbors, separate Arab entities. There's not much to convict the president of. We're going to convict him for not taking the salary, taking one dollar a year and donating the rest to the veterans, the four hundred thousand that the president makes. We're going to convict him of that. The second demand was to expel Republican members of Congress who attempted to overturn the election and incited a white supremacist attack. Well, the problem with that is um, one, uh, Republican members of Congress weren't trying to overturn an election. They were trying to get a fair count in an election. And, of course, this totally ignores uh, the fact that the Democratic Party and people like the Black Lives Matter people were trying to overturn the two, 2016 election from the day it was conducted. Uh, there was riots all through the um, inauguration And after spending millions of taxpayer dollars on investigations and independent counsels, they didn't find a shred of evidence to suggest that any of what they had alleged was true. And people like Pencil Neck Adam Schiff, who shouted it from the rafters, was never able to prove it. And that little twit, Eric Swalwell, while calling Trump a Russian spy, was literally having sex with a Chinese spy called Fan Fan, who raised money and helped bankroll his very, very career. And this guy's on the Intelligence Committee at the behest of Nancy Pelosi. Give me a break. Three, launch a full investigation into the ties between white supremacy and the Capitol Police, law enforcement, and the military. Well, I don't know how many ties there are between white supremacy. In fact, I've never seen many white supremacist organizations uh, in my time uh, in the United States. I mean, I've lived mostly in the Northeast, but uh, you know, I guess there's maybe some in some places in the very deep South or in Idaho or some place like that. But I don't see that white supremacy was ever given a uh, serious consideration is something we need to worry about. I mean, if the country is that white supremacist, as they say, it's pretty hard to explain how people like Barack Obama got elected to two terms. And uh, these white supremacists, uh, the only person who got killed, other than this cop that got hit by a fire extinguisher, was uh, an Air Force veteran who was shot to death by a Capitol police officer who happened to be black. Uh, So I don't know how far we go with that. And they want to investigate the military. Now, they also want to permanently ban Trump from all digital media platforms. I don't know what that has to do with black lives mattering. Uh, It certainly has to do with censorship and um, just arbitrarily deciding that one American citizen doesn't have the right to the First Amendment that everyone else does. So that's pretty interesting. And we get to the the last three really good. Defund the police. The police that met our BLM protesters this summer with assault rifles, tear gas, and military-grade protective gear were the same police that on Wednesday met white supremacists with patience and the benefit of the doubt going so far as to pose for selfies with the rioters. The contrast was jarring, but not for black people. We have always known who the police truly protect and serve. Uh, D.C. has the most police per capita in the country. More funding is not the solution. Again, a falsehood. The protesters in the summer that were met with tear gas, assault rifles, and military-grade protective gear were not engaged in peaceful protests. These were the same people that took over a police station in Seattle, Washington. These are the people that took over Portland. These are the people that took over places in Minneapolis. These are the people that pillaged and plundered businesses, took Manhattan and turned it into a shambles. The New York City Police Department, their hands cuffed and tied uh, and as far as the protesters go, didn't do too much for Ashley Babbitt, the woman whose name I told you nobody would remember uh, two weeks after the uh, January 6th quote-unquote assault on the Capitol while George Floyd's name lives in infamy. So this is a a half-truth. Don't let the coup, number six, don't let the coup be used as an excuse to crack down on our movement. In response to the coup, politicians have already introduced the Domestic Terrorism Prevention Act of 2021. We've seen this playbook before. What politicians have introduced this? These laws are used to target black and brown communities for heightened surveillance. Republicans are already busy trying to create an equivalence between the mob on January 6th and our freedom summer. What freedom summer? What freedom summer? All they did was riot and take places over and refused federal help when it was offered. Our government should protect righteous protest and stay focused on the real issue, rooting out white supremacy. There are enough laws, resources, and intelligence. Well, let me tell you how white supremacy is being defined by these people. I define white supremacy as people who go up there and think white race is superior, everybody else is inferior, and they need to be subjugated. That's probably a pretty good working definition of white supremacy. Uh, in their minds, anyone who disagrees with them, anyone who opposes what they do and who happens to be white, they're white supremacists. Because what's being sought here is not equality and it's not uh, protecting black lives. It's about being completely insulated and above the law and be able to do whatever they want without fear of reproach. And the minute you do, you're accused of being a white supremacist. And number seven, I love this one the best, Pass the Breathe Act. The police were born out of slave patrols. Did you know that? I didn't know that. I thought almost every civilized country had police of some sorts. Um, You had the Carabinieri in Italy way back. You had the constabulary in Great Britain. No slavery there at the time. Uh, We cannot reform an institution built upon white supremacy. We need a new radical approach to public safety and community investment. President Biden has already drawn on the BREATHE Act in his executive actions, calling for racial equity screens in federal programs, investing in environmental justice at historic levels. I don't know what that has to do with BLM. And engaging with system-impacted communities. The BREATHE Act paints a vision of a world where black lives matter, through investments in housing, education, and environmental justice. In other words, the welfare state. Let's just give more people uh, or more of other people's money to people whom we want to curry favor with. That's just one way of putting it. It's got nothing to do with Black Lives Matter or the police. These are people out with a communist socialist agenda. That's their seven demands. And this teacher in my son's class was speaking very, very highly of BLM. And then they proceeded to play a film supplied by another teacher, who my son happened to have the year before. And it was nothing more than a propaganda film where these people were seeing race everywhere. There was race everywhere. So finally, I had it. Now, my son is pretty astute. And he pointed out that the Black Lives Matter... um, Organization has associations with other organizations that they rely upon to raise funds with them. And one of those organizations has as their treasurer, one of their main people, Susan Rosenberg. Now, Susan Rosenberg is a domestic terrorist. Susan Rosenberg was big back in the 70s when these counter revolutionary groups and the 80s when these big counter revolutionary groups were um, wreaking havoc generally all over um, the United States. There were several incidents which took place um, right in New York. One was the Brinks armored car robbery in Rockland, where two Rockland police officers and a Brinks security guard were killed. There were the bombings of the United States Senate. There were the bombings of the the National War College. There were the bombings of New York City Patrolmen Benevolent Association's Headquarters. A woman named Susan Rosenberg was implicated in many of these issues and these instances. She was an uncharged conspirator in most. Uh, She was also believed to have been instrumental in the jailbreak of Joanne Chesimard, now known as Asada Shakur, who's living under the protection of the communist regime in Cuba as we speak and continues to train terrorists there. She was on the run for a number of years. She was a member of the Weather Underground. She was a member of an organization called May 19 Communist Organization, M-19CO, which the FBI described as openly advocating for the overthrow of the United States government through armed struggle and the use of violence. By the time she was 29, Susan Rosenberg was on the FBI's Most Wanted list. In any event, I'll I'll cut through the chase. She was finally arrested. Um in 1984. Her, her involvement in the bombings of the, of the Capitol, the War College, and the PBA headquarters, those charges were dropped because of a plea deal made with other members of the group. But she herself was once again, after being underground for a while, arrested in 84. And she and her co-defendants were in possession of explosives. She was sentenced after trial to 57 years in federal prison. Not something that people give out, give out lightly. And the only reason why she's not in prison now is because she was pardoned by President Clinton on his last day in office after a substantial donation was made to the Democratic National Committee. And that's the only reason she's not in custody. And since that time, she's been offered positions teaching in uh, uber-leftist colleges and then, of course, working for organizations that work with Black Lives Matter. My son pointed this out that it's not a great organization, BLM, that it's got communist leanings and that it associates itself with people like Susan Rosenberg, who went to prison for 57 years. Her answer, if you can believe this, was, quote, well, Martin Luther King went to jail too. Martin Luther King. Here's a woman who's in charge of teaching children, my child among them, and she equates... A man who was one of the greatest figures of the 20th century, a black man, Nobel Peace Prize winner who went to jail because he was in a sit-in fighting for civil rights, which violated his probation, which itself was ridiculous because the charge that gave him the probation was driving in one state without a license from that state. He had a license in another state. Georgia and Alabama, and, it's no, and there was nothing, no law against it. They 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 really railroaded him, and unbeknownst to him, there was a probation. He didn't have to do any jail time for that, but there was a probation requirement. When he engaged in the sit-in, they said it violated his probation. They sent him to prison. So finally, after much political pressure, he was released. You're going to equate the jail time that that good man did with what Susan Rosenberg did. That's the height of ignorance, and I find it personally insulting. So I wrote a lengthy, lengthy letter to the principal, just as a courtesy, because I wanted to inform him of it. He's a reasonable man, at least he has been in the past, but I also wanted him to know that notwithstanding what he does or does not do to these two teachers, the one teacher who made the statement and the other teacher who supplied the tape, I intend to take this matter to the chancellor, and I will not be dissuaded. I'm not allowing this type of garbage to be taught in school. And it's not going to be taught to my son. That's for sure. So that's my personal involvement in this issue. But I mentioned yesterday that I was shocked when I came down to my car on Monday morning at eight o'clock, turned on the radio and tuned into the fan because I had a sneaking suspicion based on things I had seen on the pregame show of the Super Bowl the day before, dealing with all manner of racial issues. And sure enough, when I tuned in, my suspicions were confirmed. Here it is shortly after 8 a.m. in the morning, the day after the Super Bowl, and I turn on the number one rated sports news station in the New York metro area, which is a big population center. And what do I hear? A discussion of the Super Bowl? The discussion of how Tom Brady would probably will be unequaled in the game of football with now seven Super Bowl rings with two different franchises? No. I don't hear any talk about Tom Brady. I don't hear any talk about the Super Bowl. I don't hear any talk about Patrick Mahomes' future. All I hear is about some pitcher from the New York Mets who wanted to go back to Los Angeles, and so he played one off against the other on the team so he can get squeeze more money out of the Dodgers and go home. This is what I hear, and one of the men on the fan is Boomer Esiason, a former NFL quarterback who played in the Super Bowl himself, and this is what I'm hearing discussed. And then I said to myself, why should I be surprised? As I stated yesterday, I had no plans to watch the Super Bowl yesterday because I hadn't watched a game all year, because I'm not about to watch a bunch of spoiled overpaid players who think it's okay to take a knee uh, during the national anthem of the country that's made them their fortunes. Now, we were talking about racism earlier in the show, and and there's certainly been racism in the history of this country. No one's going to deny that. There was slavery. There was uh, great prejudice in the aftermath of slavery. People in the South uh, still treating uh, people as if they were second-class citizens. Although many black artists have remarked in many pieces of literature that where they really felt ostracized was not in the Deep South, but in New York City, where there was a pretense in New York City of, oh, we're not prejudiced, but they let you know that they were prejudiced. Whereas in the Deep South, even though there was uh, very strict lines drawn during the Jim Crow era, there was more of an interracial ease. But be that as it may, no one can deny that in the present day, 2021, we're nowhere near what we were back in the immediate era uh, following the Civil War. You can't measure changes in things like racial equality day to day or even year to year, more along the lines of decade to decade and generation to generation. Now, I've been on this earth for more years than I'd like to admit, and I've seen a lot. You're trying to tell me that there's been no change in racial opportunity and racial equality since I grew up in the 1960s. Really? You don't think so? In the 1960s, no one could even have considered the possibility of a black man being elected president. Yet we, we had one elected president and re-elected. No one have, could have considered um, black athletes dominating sports the way they have today. No one would have considered the amount of black and minority rep- representation we have at the state, local, and federal level in all of our legislatures. Strides have been made, and things get better all the time. But we've sat, now reached a point where it's becoming a little insane, where equality is not good enough. They want reverse discrimination. They want superiority. They want all evidence of any achievement made by any white person to be erased and stripped from the cultural lexicon of society. That's not what it's designed to be. A friend of mine sent me a tweet sent out by a woman about this very topic. A woman named Bree Newsom. she was a woman that went up a flagpole took down a Confederate flag in South Carolina. She was arrested for it, and they pled it out and all that stuff. She's an activist. And she sends, sends here this tweet, there is an enormous amount of racial undertones to this entire convo, which I assume is New Age speak for conversation, about Brady being the best athlete of all time in a way that willfully ignores black athletes' past." and present, as well as the ongoing systemic discrimination against black athletes in the quarterback position. Now, this is a case in point, so I'd like to take this and and run with it, if if you don't mind. The presumption that there are not as many black athletes playing quarterback as there are white athletes is now automatically assumed to be the consequence of prejudice. And no other factors are considered. It must be the consequence of prejudice. Well, I'll have you know that Tom Brady's winning percentage in the NFL is higher than any other player in any of the major sports. He's got a higher winning percentage in football than pitchers have in baseball, than LeBron James or Michael Jordan. Had in basketball, and make no mistake, I think Michael Jordan. I mean, I was never heavily into basketball because I didn't play it very much when I was a kid. Uh, But Michael Jordan got me to watch basketball, I could watch that man play all day. He was, you know, to me, unequaled in basketball still to this day. And his preeminence in the league cannot be doubted. The Chicago Bulls won three straight championships with him. He leaves for two years, goes to play try to play professional baseball. They don't win. He comes back and they win three more in a row. The guy the guy's influence on the game cannot be denied. But Tom Brady, you can't deny it. And it it, it, it does restore my degree of uh, faith in much of American society and much of uh, American athleticism when I see prominent black players whom I respect for their views and for their achievements coming out unabashedly and saying, there's no doubt about it. Tom Brady is the greatest of all time. And I'm talking about men like Deion Sanders, Randy Moss, Ray Lewis, the former all pro -Pro linebacker who had a play against him and credited Brady with making him a better player because he Playing guys like him forced him to, as he said, sit my ass down and study how I was going to beat a master. Because he was a master at the game, like a chess master. And he's had this longevity for all these seasons. He first burst upon the scene in 2001. Here it is, 2021. The man is still playing and he's still at the top of his game. And I gave my reason for why I felt that Brady has lasted this long. One of the reasons I gave was because I felt that since he was not an overwhelming physical specimen of an athlete in terms of his 40-yard four, 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 uh, dashes and the other metrics they use to gauge quarterbacks, he was not one of the better athletes in that um, uh, contest. The name escapes him, what they call it every year, but it's his trials that all the quarterbacks have to go through. But Brady was gifted with an, a strong arm an accurate arm, and a computer brain. And so because much of his success did not depend on incredible athletic skills like the running of Patrick Mahomes and the Aaron Rodgers of the league, his playing ability, his performance, has not fallen off that cliff that Max Kellerman so erroneously predicted he would fall off of. Because his play never depended on his incredible scrambling ability or athleticism. His play was dependent on a good arm, which he'll probably have for a long time, and a computer brain and a work ethic that was unparalleled. Those things don't diminish as fast with age as speed of foot and other athletic things that people rely on. That is the secret to his longevity. But this woman swears there's all types of racism and prejudice uh, in the NFL and other sports. So I thought I'd go over some numbers for you to prove how people take facts and try to uh, portray them conveniently. Now, there's no question the athleticism of the African-American athlete has revolutionized the face of American sports. We just can't deny it. Some of the greatest players you've ever seen in all of the sports have been African-American and their feats are unparalleled. And that athleticism has worked against them in certain positions like quarterback. Even though they say the quarterback position is one of the most difficult to play, people like Tom Brady, the Dan Marinos, not highly mobile compared to other quarterbacks, but incredible arms, good releases, and students of the game, prove that with a good arm and a good brain, you can excel at the position of quarterback without this athleticism. Sometimes athleticism can be a curse. Some of these black athletes are so gifted athletically that they're steered to other positions because that athleticism is necessary for those positions and not always readily available in the quantity that is required to sustain the level of play expected in the NFL. An old bookmaker once told me the only two positions in the starting lineup, I said this the other day, that affect the line on a betting line on a football game is an injury to the quarterback and the cornerbacks. So let's look at that. Let's look at that. In the NFL... There are 175 cornerbacks in the league. 175. 170 of them are black. Only five are not black. I don't hear these people that are talking about the prejudice at the quarterback position against the black athlete saying anything about the prejudice against the non-black athlete or the white athlete in the cornerback position. So you want everything evened up? So it's okay. It's okay if... 170 of the 175 cornerbacks are black. That's fine. We're not going to discuss that. But we need equity in the quarterback position. What if I told you in order to get that equity at the quarterback, at the quarterback position, you'd have to give up some of the cornerback slots so it's equitable for everyone all over, the, all over the board? Because I have news for you. Only 27.7% of the National Football League's roster is composed of white players. The rest are non-white players predominantly black players. So it isn't as if there's a, a current level of um, prejudice against the black athlete in the NFL. They're clearly very well represented, and there's some of the preeminent players in the game. But this is the, the fallacy that I'm talking about, because you can't have or don't have everything. You want us to believe that there, you have nothing, that there's been no strides made in, for any uh, African-American, which is not true. African-Americans have made great strides in America, and I want to continue to see them make great strides. And I would have no problem if there were more African-American quarterbacks. I wouldn't care if the majority of the quarterbacks were African-American, just like I don't care that the majority of the quarterbacks are African-American, 170 out of 175. And I don't think the owners care either. The owners are in business to succeed. They're in business to make money. And they're going to put the best players at the positions that they need to fill. And if it means that 175 cornerbacks in the league have to be filled with 170 black players and five white players, because that's going to produce the best players on the field, that's what they're going to do. So for whatever reason, this is the way it shakes out. And it could very well be because these athletes who were capable of playing quarterback, who happened to be black, were also capable of playing various other positions that other people who could play quarterback couldn't play. And so they ended up there. You send your talent where you need it. This is a sports business position. So unless you want to start saying... Well, we've got to even things up all the way. We've got to get rid of some of those black cornerbacks. Put some more white guys in there. We can find a couple of fast white guys. Come on. Take some of those cornerbacks out. Let them get their shot at, at quarterback. It doesn't work that way. You've got to put them where they do the most good for the team and the league. And they get paid well for that. But let's go over the whole NFL roster. As I said, 27.7%. White, the rest black. Non white. Now, running back. You got 120 players in the league that play at the position of running back. 107 of them are African American. So, do we want to get rid of some of the African American running backs? Let them try their hand at, at quarterback instead? I mean, this becomes a ridiculous argument. And this preeminence of the black athlete extends beyond the NFL. Look at the NBA. Here's an article I pulled up on the internet from 2018, saying that in an ethnic breakdown of sports, the NBA takes the lead for the most diverse. Last 20 years, Major League Sports in North America have seen some surprising and not-so-surprising changes in the diversity of their athletes. The NBA took the lead among men's sports for having the most diverse teams. The most diverse teams. 2018 report shows Major League Baseball also diverse. Let's go to the National Basketball Center. I really want to crack on this because it's got some, i got more detailed numbers on this. 80.7% of the players in the NBA are people of color. And they say that the NBA takes the lead among men's sports for player diversity. Is that true? I don't think that the population of the United States is 80.7% black or non-white. But these people that want to criticize the fact that Tom Brady is getting a lot of accolades are perfectly comfortable with 80.7% of all the players in the NBA being black. That's a disproportionate representation. And here's what they don't get. I don't care. And neither does the rest of white America care that the majority of these athletes are minorities or that they're black or that they represent a disproportionate percentage of the league population vis-a-vis their general population in the United States. If these are the best players for the game, so be it. It's about getting the best players on the field or on the court in the right position. There's been no orchestrated effort to keep black quarterbacks out of the quarterback position. I'll guarantee you that there were players who were black who were capable of playing the quarterback position. But they were also capable of playing other positions. So if you got two athletes, one is white and one is black. They can both play quarterback. But they both can't play cornerback. And the guy that was black was unbelievably fast and would have made an excellent cornerback because of his speed and athleticism. He might have been able to play quarterback, but maybe he only would be slightly above average in that, in that position, let's say, hypothetically. But in cornerback, he's a Hall of Famer. Where is he best utilized for the team? He's best utilized at the cornerback. So the conversation needs to be toned down. A lot of this nonsense needs to be put away. And we have to start acknowledging Tom Brady deserves every bit of the accolades that he's gotten. And I know he's got a lot of rings, but I also know that there were haters out there against Tom Brady. And let's not be secretive about why the hate is there. They're hating him because he's won a lot of Super Bowls. They're hating him because there's this bias against the New England Patriots. They think Belichick somehow was a cheater, that Brady is somehow a cheater, and then People would try and take away his achievements and say, well, he's only good because he's, he's good in that system. He's a system quarterback. This man had no tools around him. He had a paucity of receivers. And regardless of who they gave him or how they played, he managed to find a way to win, and he managed to find success. Went into postseason play virtually every year of his career. I think every year of his career. Unbelievable. Unbelievable level of achievement. and then. In what should have been the twilight of his career for most people by age, he goes off to Tampa Bay, a franchise that was below 500. Goes there, takes the team, brings him up. Antonio Brown, black player, goes to Tampa. Why? Wants to play with Tom Brady. Knows what Brady's capable of. Knows that he can make him a winner. Played with Brady before. Rob Gronkowski, perhaps one of the greatest, if not the greatest, tight end to ever play the game. Retired from football. Goes to Tampa Bay. Tight end for the Buccaneers, gets hurt. Brady calls him up. Gronk, I need you. Comes out of retirement. Why? Because he's playing with Tom Brady. Brady treats everybody equally. He lifts up all the players around him. There's no prejudice in Tom Brady. Brady loves his teammates and his teammates love him. I advise every one of you don't listen to these idiots in the media that want to stir discontent among people, black against white, white against black. Go listen to the films, one film in particular, when the, when the um, Patriots played the Atlanta Falcons, when they had that storybook comeback in the fourth quarter. Go listen to the talk, the conversation on the sidelines of the black players on the Patriots, on the black players, the Patriots. And there's one fellow there. His name escapes me at the moment, but you'll hear it. As they started coming back, coming back, and they were getting near the end of the fourth quarter and it was getting close to being tied up or it was tied up. This guy says, "As clear as day. He says, we're going to overtime. It's over. He goes, we got Tom Brady, bro. He's the greatest of all time. That's it. It's over. The confidence." that those teammates had in Brady. There was nothing they felt that he could not do. There was nothing they felt he could not overcome to bring them to victory. He had all of their confidence, whether they were black, whether they were white, whether they were purple, whether they were from Mars. Racism has no place In American sports today in the conversation because it's just not there it's overblown it's bs and as far as this other nonsense about not being called into the coaching staff there is more and more black coaches and you're going to get more and more black coaches and the most ridiculous argument of all that there's not enough black owners well what are we supposed to do give people a team just because they think they should have more black owners nobody's going to stop a black man from buying a team make an offer. If there's a team for sale, make an offer. We've got mega, mega rich athletes in, any, in many sports that are black. They could put together a conglomerate. They could put together a company and buy a team. Oprah Winfrey a, is a black woman. She's a billionaire. She could buy an NFL team or be a, a principal owner in one. Can you show me a story of people who were black that wanted to buy an NFL team and were denied? purchasing it solely because they were... No, we don't think you can own it. You're black. Come on. Are there not black owners because none of them want to buy it? Or because they've been kept from buying it? I don't think they've been kept from buying it. I think this is just another example, the latest example of people wanting to make trouble where there is none. Where they want to see white supremacy where it doesn't exist. And let's not forget, Brady... And Robert Kraft, the owner of the patriots, were big Trump supporters. Yeah, there's a lot of things at play here, but it isn't racism. It's opportunism. And don't ever forget it. Don't ever forget it. And one last little thing I want to give you. I went long today because um, I had a lot to cover. Someone sent me a little clip. You know, Everybody likes to beat up on Donald Trump, the guy who did more for this country in four years than anybody has done in eight years. And they want us to believe they voted for this senile old fool we have in there now. Oh, how can you say that, Jamie? He's not senile. Well, let me let you hear from the horse's mouth. It's only a 42-second clip. It's uh, Joe Biden telling us all how safe we're going to be with the vaccines. So I want you to listen and listen carefully. This has not been cut, it's not been edited, this is 42 seconds uninterrupted of Joe Biden speaking. Expect these additional 200 million doses to be delivered this summer. And some of it will come as early, begin to come in early summer, but by the, mid, by the midsummer that this vaccine will be there. And the order, and, and, and that increases the total vaccine order, in the United States by 50%, from 400 million order to 600 million. This is enough vaccine to fully vaccinate 300 Americans by end of the summer, the beginning of the fall. But we want to make, look, that's, I want to repeat, it'll be enough to fully vaccinate 300 Americans. There's nothing wrong with your radio, ladies and gentlemen, or your phone. That's just Joe Biden. Telling you all he knows about the vaccine program. For National Preview Online, I'm Jamie Dury.